always, always. Well, everything's upside down. Hold on. I'm going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 10. A very well-known parable <coughs> I want to go through for many reasons. For many reasons. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 20. say that. Hold on a minute. No, verse 25. Sorry about that. (laughs) Okay, back up to verse 21. Here we go. In the same hour he rejoiced. And the Holy Spirit and said, this is Jesus, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to you by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Now the parable. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What does the law say? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw this man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he passed, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. (laughs) Now, there's some things in here that in my area of hobby expertise that I love to dance around. When it comes to epistemology, to validating what we know, to understanding why and how we apply what we understand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and in the context of applying what we learn in the Bible, living it out philosophically and practically, I can get very excited and get very bogged down. And I took a whole bunch of notes this week um, that I won't deal with today, but... I write more than I need lately, which is a good thing. If I get it on paper, I don't have to say it to you. 
But there's several things that I want you to see here. And first of all, I think we need to be reminded about the context of what's happening. Why would Jesus, number one, deal with this in the culture? So he's talking with this lawyer, this legal arguer, this person who knew the law, someone who would educate righteousness and justice. Think about that for a second. And he's just said privately to his disciples, this is why I was trying to figure out exactly where I wanted to start, but privately to his disciples, you know, you're blessed because you see what many have longed to see but couldn't see. Now he's talking specifically of himself. You're standing and visibly seeing the kingdom of heaven come down. You're seeing Messiah, Mashiach, the Christ, standing before you. What they longed for, like what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, where, you know, these never saw or reached it. They looked at it from afar. That's one way. But there's also another way in which Jesus, and I'll show you this in the second point, but Jesus makes it very clear throughout his entire ministry that he teaches in parables as to not be very direct in his theological teaching. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit illuminates and, uh, and opens the eyes of one of God's sheep, one of God's children, at the time that God has allotted, there is an apprehension that goes beyond cognitive understanding, even though there is a lot of cognitive understanding. That is always subjective, depending on IQ, depending on background, depending on language, depending on what's going on, depending on your physical health and your mental health and your emotional health, your education. But there is a sense in which God establishes a resting understanding and a, and a faith in, some, in someone because he does that supernaturally. And then they, with, the, with whatever type of tool they have with their brain, they're able to latch on to Christ. And so the Bible teaches us that Jesus taught in parables as to not to be direct. As to not give the theological answer. As to not give the treatises on on what the legalist would always argue, what the self-righteous would argue, because culture, according to the will of God, had come to a, such a place where people had forgotten the mercy of God, the compassion of God, had forgotten the grace of God, thus the gospel of Jesus Christ, just the, just the gospel of the Messiah, the good report, the good story, the good promise of God that would establish a people for himself forever. They'd forgotten it. And they build themselves up in such a way that they become not just racist, not just bigoted, not just sexist, not just arrogant, not just terrible, not just tyrants, not just over, you know, oppressors. But they became elite. And they did so with the humble brag. They did so with the, thank God I'm not like that guy, you know. Thank God I'm no longer this way. Thank God I'm no, I'm no longer ignorant of this theological truth. Thank God I've got this together. Thank God. Thank you, God, for doing all this in me. Thank you, God. Praise be to God that you've made me to be this amazing, almost Christ-like man. You know? And it's like this is the attitude of, the, of the, the religious elites. And brothers and sisters, this is the same attitude that we have today when we grab onto something that God has even allowed us to see and we're not applying it in a place of servanthood, compassion, love, and selflessness. So when we get to the idea and the historical theology of, you know, we know what the rule of life is and all, we use these terms that are not wrong, but they're just misunderstood because everybody's made a mountain out of a molehill and actually dug them all up, killed him, burned him, and turned him into an ant and then tried to make it into another type of hill. And, and everywhere you go, there's always confusion because there's always elitism in the context of even humility according to the culture that everybody knows what they're doing. And if you just listen to them, they'll tell you. 
And in the day of Jesus, when he was speaking these very things to this lawyer in the earshot of public, there was a dynamic that was wicked amongst the religious. And they hated people. They hated people that didn't look like them. They hated people that didn't dress like them. They hated people that didn't speak like them. They hated people that didn't sing like them. They hated people that didn't bathe like them. They hated people that didn't eat like them. They couldn't stand to be around people that didn't think like them. And if they did not cower and they weren't equals, they were nothing. And that was just in their own people. That was just among Jews. Just among the worshipers of God in Judaism. So then you've got other cultures, what they would call the world. In the New Testament, anytime you see the world, it's usually speaking of, almost 90% of the time, even more, I just say most of the time, it's usually always speaking of non-Jewish people. And Jewish people were a minority in the world, always had been. And so here we see this spiritual elite, and we see Jesus telling a story. And so in this context, this Jewish Samaritan animosity, this, this whole situation began when Samaritans began to relate to Jews, began to adopt their theological things and their precepts and their liturgy, and they created a replica of Solomon's temple on Mount Gerizim. And they began to worship just like Israel, but they weren't allowed to worship with Israel because they weren't pure like Israel. They weren't theologically astute like Israel. They weren't, a, they weren't able to rub elbows and to be intimate with those people because they weren't good enough in the eyes of God. And you've got to understand that Judaism in the first century, much like Christianity in the century that we're in, it's funny how we're just jumping back to the centuries and <laughs> the music end of the sermon, um, is shame-based. It's control-based. You might not think that, but think about the things that you grew up, if you grew up in the church, learning what you could not do. I mean, come on, let's think about it for a second. If you go to Sunday school, or if you go to camp, or you go to Bible study, or you go to a sermon, or you're in some type of evangelical church in the South, it may not be the same way everywhere, but I know in the South, you know, two or three times a year you went to church, you heard what you shouldn't be doing. You heard what you can't say, what you can't eat, what you can't do, where you can't go, what you can't watch, what you can't listen to. But did you ever hear who you were? Did you ever hear who God was? Did you ever hear who the Jesus of the Bible was and what he accomplished for you, what he did for you, his sheep? And then what liberty that it gave you? Liberty of free, freedom of conscience, freedom of fear, freedom in a way to worship, to be authentic. See, we've been taught not to be authentic. We've been taught not to be ourselves. We've been taught even when we find things in us that we know are not pleasing to God, that are sinful. We've been taught to hide those things and not speak of those things because anyone who would think of those things are obviously not the child of God. This is the worst deception that has ever plagued humanity when it comes to the believers of this world. Now imagine being a Samaritan. They were not, they were of the world to begin with, that then they adopted this, I don't even know what to say it, this cultural Judaism. And you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17 if you want to see the Assyrian conquest. But this divergence that took place here became them not just not like us, but 
the antithesis of us. They are the most disgusting dogs of society. How dare they take our God and worship him in this way? You see? How dare they? And if you want to get an idea of just how great that tension is in the New Testament, think about Jesus in John chapter 5 where he speaks to the woman of Sychar. One of my favorite places to go when I evangelize. It's one of my favorite places to go when I evangelize because it is Jesus tearing down without teaching. He's showing, not telling. See, that's the problem, too, that we often have. And I'll say that, and this is why Jesus, and this is my second point when I get to it, Jesus uses parables. He shows. He doesn't tell. He shows. We should be showing rather than just telling. And I'll explain that as the weeks unfold. I mean, as the points unfold. So here we have this parable, and then this lawyer comes up. He gets this parable because he asks a question. We have this issue with these Samaritans who are hated, and this lawyer comes in. He's like, so what shall I do? Does this sound familiar, the rich young ruler? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus gives a similar answer in every way, but this time he uses a Socratic method, which means he asks a question to answer a question. He pulls the answer out of the questioner. Sometimes we do that with our children, right? I love to know why and what people are thinking. Sometimes they think I'm being <coughs> negative or indifferent when I ask questions, but it's not the way. I mean, I just like to know. It's just habitual for me. This man, he stood up, and he, the Bible says that he put Jesus to the test. Now, what was his motive according to that? To prove Jesus wrong. To prove Jesus wrong. Because you've got to understand... <laughs> You got to understand what Jesus has been saying. Jesus has been teaching a lot of stuff. He's just said that the Father has handed everything over to him. I mean, this is the this is a tall. I mean, it's like somebody ringing your doorbell and you've never met them, and they start talking. Hey, I just got into town. I got a flat tire in front of your house. And by the way, on my way here, God told me I'm gonna pop your tire and I'm gonna go in and see this family. And He told me to write this down on a napkin. And I'm going to be your guardian for the next six weeks during this thunderstorm series. You'd be like, yeah, get out of my face. And, and rightly so. But right before this conversation, some days before or whatever, Jesus cast out demons in front of people. Jesus healed people. Jesus got, Jesus got blind people see and lame people walk and arms grow back and voices come out and, and ears learn to hear and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, he's not just talking. He's not just telling them who he is. He's showing them. He's not just telling them, here is the theology behind what you need to get correct. He is showing them, I am. I am what? No, I, I am, I am, you see. So this lawyer is testing Jesus. He wants to see, in his mind, he said, okay, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't catch him, but I can. How many times this happened? We see it almost every New Testament gospel. We see it several times. What can I do? See, this question, it's a reflection of this man's heart. It's a reflection, listen to this very carefully, of this man's understanding of the grace of God. Understanding of the gospel, which the gospel means the story of Christ that is good. The report. The promise of God. The gospel is only what God has declared to do. The story of it. And then the story of the fact that it was done. It is the telling of what God has done and what God has promised. No other theologies, 
No other thing, it is just the telling of what Christ has done. Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy Anointed One of God, the Son of God, God Himself in the flesh, came and died for His people and raised life, proving that He was who He said He was, and He promised, as He said He would come, He did, and He's alive, He promised He would receive us unto Himself. And we rest in that with childlike, infantile, spiritually divine, gifted faith. This lawyer's question established a peek into his heart. See, Jewish concern for righteousness and salvation is seen as an adherence to the law. So Jesus asked the question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And he's, two-part question, right? What does the law say, and how do you understand it? How do you interpret it? The crazy thing about that is when that Jesus asked this question every single time in the Bible or something relative to it, he always asked this question to people who are self-righteous. He never asked this question evangelistically. You know why? Because this isn't evangelism. Showing people the error of their way is not showing them the truth of Christ. Because anybody can be convinced that they're wrong. But only the God, the Holy Spirit, can give us this assurance that He is right. There's hope in that, beloved. There's not hope in anything else. How do you, how do you respond? I mean, what do you, th- what do you think, he says? What do you, how do you read this? This response showcases that Jesus engaged people in dialogue and helped them discover truths through their own understanding. And oftentimes those truths were wrong. But it wasn't evangelistic. This man came to probably an epiphany going, oh my goodness. Just like the people we see, you know, in, the, in, the, in that parenthetical in John 8, John 7 and 8, where the first one without sin, go ahead, shut the stone. It's not a fake story, it's just not canonized. But it doesn't tell us that all those people came to know Christ. They just in that moment understood a theological truth and they walked in it for a minute. But it doesn't mean that they were born again. It doesn't mean that they were anywhere closer to God. You don't get closer to salvation. You don't get closer to God. You don't get closer to being born again. You don't all of a sudden get, you don't get all the, it doesn't stack up. God's not like wooing and drawing and massaging and coercing. He's like, boom, you're born again. I don't know anything, but I know one thing. Christ is the only answer I've got. I don't know much, and I know I've tried to think about a lot of things, but all I know is when Messiah comes, He will teach me these things that I've so long to know. Where does that come from? That's the woman of Sychar. That's a Samaritan woman. And the, the Spirit of God gave her that unction, gave her that security, gave her that. And she goes back and tells these people who she did not want to even face, I have come and see this man that I have met who has told me everything that I've ever done. He is and may well be the Christ. See, many people have correct understanding. Many people can be corrected theologically. Many people can get the doctrine right. Beloved, I have expert knowledge of the talking points of a lot of different subjects. A lot of different subjects. Because I love it. 
it doesn't make me a physicist. It doesn't make me a neurosurgeon. It doesn't make me a psychotherapist. It doesn't make me a mathematician. It doesn't make me a, a, a linguist. I understand the acoustics of a violin. It doesn't make me a master violinist, nor does it make me a creator of violins. So anyone, I've had professors in seminary who knew doctrine and who knew theology and who knew the gospel so well that I wept in class, but they were lost and they would say it. I don't believe this. I just know it. You don't have a PhD in anything. You can research yourself to become an expert in any subject, in any iteration of that subject, in any microscopic element of that subject. It doesn't make you saved and God is not impressed. And when you come to know certain things, it is not proof of your salvation. Your salvation is proven only in the finished work of Jesus Christ in which you rest, in which you stand, no matter how you parse it. And I want you, beloved, to rest in that and not fight inside your mind with the fodder and the noise that our culture, that in this very community and in your very home, sometimes we get caught up in. Rest. What must I, am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? Am I doing this? Why? Because I want to honor the Lord. Great. Good questions. Because I'm scared I'm not saved. Bad. You see? Resting. And like I said earlier, we grew up learning what we shouldn't be doing, and then we realized we're doing it all, right? Whether we're practicing this bad thing over here, or we got this bad thing over here. I think I was talking with mom last night about this on the phone. I mean, we're all guilty of sin. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of, of being horrible people. And I'm just thankful I haven't murdered anybody yet. Physically. I'm not proud of myself because I don't do this or don't do that or don't do the other. And there have been times in my life I couldn't see past that. I'm like, you know what, hey, wow. Man, I'm glad I never fell into that. Not in a self-righteous way, but sometimes we feel a little pride knowing that we didn't fall into certain things. Oh my goodness, it's in there. It's in us. And what's, I mean, is there any, is there anything that we can really say that We've done well before the Lord that he would give us credit for? Is there anything? Can we even say, yeah, I came to the truth and I believed? No. We can say, no, your mercy and grace has set me before you righteously. And beloved, here's the amazing thing. In glory, we will be made righteous. We will be renewed to be Beheld as Christ is. Jesus uses these parables. See, a lot of people have these understandings, and some of which is extremely correct, but if they cannot apply, listen to this, if, if people cannot apply the knowledge of the Bible in their life and their thoughts and in their practice, they have failed to understand it. They have failed in their knowledge of it. The litmus test of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is that we love others. Did I say the litmus test of our regeneration? No. Did I say the litmus test of our salvation? No. What's the litmus test of our salvation? Christ. Jesus Christ and His righteousness. It's really that simple. 
Resting faith, simple grace, all these things, all these concepts, it's really that simple. We have, com- we have made so complex such simple things. They will know that you are. They will know that you are my followers because you love each other. Or what is this sofa made of? I don't know. How long will it last? Couldn't tell you. What's the tensile strength of the legs? Wouldn't know how to calculate it. What do you know? Sit on it. Now, isn't that comfortable? <laughs> Rest. So Jesus uses parables. Why did he do that? In Matthew 13, Jesus says these words. He says, this is why I speak in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Parables were a means to reveal truths to those who had the ears to hear. And it concealed the truth from those who did not have the ears to hear. How do you have the ears? The Holy Spirit gives you the ears. And I don't want to get into my theology and how I parse out the realities of regeneration and faith and all these things. I think they're all intricately the same thing. So Jesus engaged by telling stories. And they weren't just simple stories, but they were designed to provoke thought, to challenge the understanding of the conventional culture, and to invite listeners into a process of deeper understanding. Let me tell you something, beloved. You remember, and I say this, this isn't new. I say this a lot. When we read the Bible, I mean, yeah, you ever, let's just take the Bible off the table for a minute. You're reading a story. You're reading an article. You're reading an essay. You're reading fiction. You're reading a biography. Don't in your mind sometimes just go, wow. And you start thinking about that stuff. You start mulling through these things. And you, and you think a little bit deeper. And you think, well, I wonder what it was like to live then. Or I wonder what was going on. I wonder what color their dress was. You start envisioning things. Not, not everybody's visual like me. Not everybody has an internal dialogue that doesn't stop. Not everybody sees in pictures. Not everybody sees in colors. Not everybody sees, you know, we all are different. We're all different. But in the same way, I think when we read things and we engage in things, sometimes we think about them. And we stop them. And then when it's over, if we go to a movie and we get, we get, we start thinking, I mean, where do you think the fan fiction comes from? Or the ideas, what do you think about that? What about the universe here? Blah, blah, blah. And we get going. And I mean, just look at chess theory. I think about just chess theory from the time I learned to play chess at 10. And where it is today, it's just like, I'm done. It's just so much because we continue to expand. The problem with expansion is when we create new things. But if we're doing that with the, with the mundane of life, with the intricacies of these extracurricular things, with all of the other stuff, even with the news, why are we not doing that with the Word of God? When a parable like this is presented to us, we should not say, okay, Jesus got that guy. That's not the point. The point is for us to pause and go, who am I in the story? Who is Christ in the story? How do I feel about this? What am I thinking about myself? What am I thinking about this? What am I thinking about what I learned earlier to what I'm going to be doing tomorrow? How do I apply this? What's the big deal? We should be thinking. We should meditate on the Word of God. Not just recite it. Not just memorize it. 
Memorization is not rote. Memorization is absorption and application. And you can paraphrase the Bible all day long. It is still the Word of God. It still has power. If you think the KJV or the ESV or the NIV or the Greek manuscripts we have are authoritative in and of themselves in the language, you've missed the point. So Jesus uses these parables and he challenges the understanding of his listeners. And he invites his people to process this with deeper understanding. So let's look at these characters. Let's look at these characters. So we've got, the, we got these people. So there's this man. He's going down to Jer- from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. He didn't fall down. He fell among robbers. In other words, he got jacked. He got mugged on the street. And they beat him so badly they left him dead, half dead. So there's a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan. Sounds like a joke, right? A priest, a Levite, a Samaritan go down to Jericho. <laughs> but these people represent something. And so when I was telling a story, or when Jesus was telling a story, and if I were standing there as a, as a lawyer, as an arguer of righteousness, as a debater and arbiter of justice, think about that now, educating righteousness. If I were that person and I heard someone say a Levite came by or a priest came by, I'd have an understanding of what was being said. I'd have an understanding. So... A priest. What's well, a priest? A priest is the person who mediates between God and man. A priest is the one who goes into the Holy of Holies. A priest is the one who pours the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. A priest is the one who enters into the place, into the mercy seat. A priest is the one who is the representation of God's mediation, which is Jesus Christ. A priest is the one who offers prayers. A priest is the one who offers offerings. A priest is the one who oversees the worship of redemption, sacrifice, and justice. So from a lawyer's perspective, a a, a priest would be like, oh, this priest, if he walked away, holy cow, we should all walk away. If the priest doesn't stop and help this man, why would he not? Because this man is unclean. The priest is near righteous as you can get, right? You got a Levite tribe of Levi. What are these people? These are the priests. All priests come from the tribe of Levi. And so when we see these people here, not just the priests, but somebody in his lineage comes by and doesn't even do it. The people who are supposed to what? Epitomize the mercy and the compassion and the love and the grace of of God. They are supposed to be walking testaments to good news. Now think about that. The beauty of that and understanding that culturally helps us really pick the picture up when Jesus says you are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. That we are ministers. See only priests ministered and administered. But we are ministers of a new covenant. Paul would say that we're ministers of a new covenant. We have this precious treasure in jars of clay. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. (laughs) And here's this whole line 
of mercy givers, of mercy displayers, of mercy preachers, of mercy practicers, showing no mercy. If you love me, you will obey my commandment. You know the whole context of 1 John has to do with our compassion toward others. You know that, right? So when we test the spirits, we test the spirits for two things. We test the spirits to make sure they say that Christ is the Son of God in the flesh. Number one. Number two, that you give as you have ability to love to others. That's it. And in that context, we take James, the epistle, the apostle James and his letter. And we see that a real active living faith is one that loves with compassion and, and, and you know, not indifference, but in the sense of, of, of being, that's what am I trying to say? Not showing favoritism. A professing Christian without absolute compassion is a noisy gong. A professing Christian without patience for others is a clanging cymbal. A, a professing Christian without humility and servitude in the face of the devil is worthless. Those aren't my dogmas. Those are Paul's dogmas. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, go read it. He says those exact same things. And beloved, I don't have it. Let me say that again. I don't have it. I don't have the compassion, the love, the kindness, and the patience that I need to have. I don't have it. I learned to posture it and made myself believe that I did, but all I was doing was placating to conserve what I thought was peace. <laughs> and if I'm going to be honest, God gives me compassion when I need it. But I'm not walking around in this cloud of overly kindness. Some people do, and I praise God for it. But I am kind and compassionate, and that's all I want to be. But I'm not always that way. And neither are you. And even though I may not show it, there's sometimes in our hearts, beloved, we know sometimes in our hearts, we're like, I was talking with Abigail about this yesterday. Sometimes we, we're called to love people, even the, the nasty ones, the unlovable ones, and we'll get to that now. But we have to be honest and say, no, I don't love these people. I don't feel love for these people. I don't want to be kind to these people. But when we reflect on the mercy of Christ, we reflect on the mercy of God, we reflect on the mercy of the story of the gospel, then we go, wow, now I can't. And so we're empowered by the Spirit of God to do such things. And so it's not in us. It's not of us. It's of Christ. And yes, we grow in the disciplines and we learn and we become softer. But we're never going to escape that little voice sometimes. There's always, those, there's always a person or persons or ideal or something that will, make, that will trigger us to make us like, oh, I just hate these. And it's okay. Be honest about that. Be authentic before the Lord about those things. And then don't destroy yourself for there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ before the Father. Why would we condemn ourselves before him? Stop it. Don't do that. So this priest and this Levite, the picture... of compassion they're more concerned over ritual purity listen to this they're more concerned over ritual purity what looks good what the culture says is good what they should be be how they should be being seen or the fear of danger oh if i go over there maybe that guy's gonna mug me or maybe i'm gonna be in trouble that's a bad neighborhood i don't know but it reflects this tension between the law and the gospel it re reflects this tension between you know Getting it all right and living life in the moment for the sake of the gospel of Christ. But then we got the Samaritan, right? 
in this tertiary of tricksters. We've got the one who actually is a representation of sin. We've got the one who actually is the one who is just sort of gross, a dog of the world. That if a Samaritan was walking down the street and you were a Jewish person, you would cross the street to not pass by them. Reminds me of some of the things that I've seen in history. In every country, in every place, in every generation. And racism and sexism and all these other different things. That people just, you see genocide and all this other stuff. People just hate certain peoples. Because of the fact that they are something. The Samaritan is actually the hero. The Samaritan is actually the picture of Christ. And it's shocking. It's shocking for Jesus to say that. Because here's what that lawyer would think. The Levite came and the priest came. Whoa, what's this Samaritan? The Samaritan is probably going to rob him again. The Samaritan is probably going to kick him when he goes out. The Samaritan is probably going to spit on him. And if he goes over there, this poor guy who was a Jewish brother, the priest and Levites wouldn't even say, the Samaritan goes over there and helps him, then he'll never be a help. He'll never be able to be in society again. So if the Samaritan does do good, he's going to ruin this man's life. He's going to ruin this man's religious life. He's going to ruin this man's social life. Because you got healed by a Samaritan. You got, so not only does the Samaritan do it, I mean, it was a shock. It was offensive to the audience that Jesus was talking to. It was offensive. I, I can't say what I'm thinking because it is too harsh for a general audience. But imagine the most grotesque and vile person that you hope never comes into your life. By what they do or what they represent. And imagine that person coming to your rescue. This man, this Samaritan, this person... He gave first aid, he gave shelter, he gave financial assistance. <laughs> it defied everything these people stood for in the name of God. Yet he was doing it all in the light of God. Well, there's more to learn here. There's a lot more to learn here. That was point one of a nine-part message. I told you I wrote a lot. But let's think about Christ. Let's think about Christ in this story. The Samaritan's actions reflect Christ's mission. To seek and save the lost. To show compassion. To overcome and battle self-righteousness. But not culturally, spiritually. Just as a Samaritan was an outsider who provided compassionate care, Jesus was what? Became an outsider. Why do you say that? He was hated. The scripture said he would be hated. He would become outsider. He would be taken outside the camp. He was crucified. 
And everywhere he turned, he did things that would put him on the outside of the culture of religion, outside the culture of Judaism. He washed the feet of other people. He intermingled with tax collectors and thieves and night workers. and murderers and bigots but yet he'd go into the temple and profess the very thing that the prophets said that he would and they'd kick him out Christ came as an outsider and brought salvation to those outside he brought salvation not to the righteous not to the religious, not to the saved, not to the secure, but to the lost. The gospel of grace. This whole thing is a picture of the gospel of grace. This parable points to the grace of God and the compassion of God, which transcends human boundaries, transcends liturgy, Transcends religious practice, transcends theological distinctions, transcends, transcends, transcends. And some people, and we'll just go ahead and do this little caveat here. Some people say, oh, so you're saying, no, I'm saying exactly what I'm saying. It transcends it. I'm not affording any place for false teaching in any way. And when it does come, we just say, no, that's incorrect. The Bible says this. And that's the end of it. We don't succumb to any kind of jury. Because somebody else thinks that our theology is off, and then the theology is not off, and then all of a sudden now we're born again. That's just like the priest and the Levite. That's just like the way the people treated the Samaritans. And beloved, I think you should separate yourself from that idea. And from anyone who promotes it. Because they can't stand it. They have to get dogmatic. They can't even trust in the sovereignty of God and His grace and His power because they have to pound the drums. You got to listen. You got to listen. You got to all. No, there is no urgency of. There's no urgency of you better watch out. You better separate. I mean, this is nonsense. This is not the worst thing that we've ever done as as as. I'm not going to say as a church, but in general, as Christians in our culture, is to separate ourselves from the world and make the distinction. Well, these are lost people over here, and we're saved, so we've got to stay together. No, we need to go into the world. We're not of the world. We need to be in the world. I mean, in the last six to eight weeks, I think I've talked to 300 people about the gospel. It's been empowering and I've heard nothing new but I've heard all the same old same old about yeah I know God loves me because of X or I know I'm going to be in heaven because of this and I'm like that's amazing that's interesting I've heard that before let me tell you what the Bible says about that and then I leave on the word of God and then they're like wow and then that's the end of it that is God's business what happens after that it is not for me to parse their minds or their souls or their spiritual conditions in any way and if they show up here and say I believe we will accept them as a brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ and if anything changes we will gently and lovingly correct them and when they're corrected we say praise God we've gained a sibling that's as simple as it is because that is the commands of Christ for his church and his elders and its elders its overseers and its congregation its family we're not going to police people 
Because when we police people, we walk the other side of the road. When we police people, we are not Christ-like. But oh, how I wanted to get into the next question, because what I've just done begs the question, then who is my neighbor? You're, the Bible says I should love my neighbor. And some people segregate this idea about segregation and separation because they say, well, they're not my brothers. They're not my sisters, so I don't, I'm not accountable to them. Yes, we are. We're responsible. We're obligated, not necessarily accountable. We're accountable to God. Not for our righteousness and purity. Not for the ritualistic picture of purity. Not for Puritanism or Puritan culture. But for standing in the purity of Christ alone, imputed to us, given to our account, credited to us. So Jesus asked the question, or you know, uh, the lawyer asked the question, or no, Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think provided, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Because the man asked, answered the question. And I didn't even say that, but you, you, you heard it. The man asked the question, to love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> that is the law of God. And he goes, good, do it. Which one of these do you think did it? And the man doesn't even say, the Samaritan. The man says, the one who showed compassion. <laughs> the one who showed compassion. So Jesus expands the concept of what it means to be a neighbor. It's beyond social and theological and spiritual and cultural constructions. I mean, you've got to understand, we've got strict social boundaries in our day, but they're nothing like they were in this religious culture in the first century. greatest of all these things is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The Samaritan's actions illustrate that anyone in need, I want you to listen to this simple thing, it's a story, it's a simple story, anyone in need, regardless of their background, regardless of their place in life, is our neighbor. I'm going to say that again. Anyone in need, emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual, Anyone in need is our neighbor. When we are presented with that opportunity, and we can, they are our neighbor. And that compassion needs to be Christ-like in this way, as far as I'm about to say, even those who reject the gospel. I'm having amazing conversations with atheists right now. About once a week, 15 minutes. It's neat. And it's amazing how many atheistic principles I agree with because of the way that Christian culture has formed itself. And the only difference is they haven't been given eyes to see and a heart to rest and the sovereignty of God and salvation through Christ Jesus, they blame the Jesus of the culture they see on the atrocities of hate. It's almost 90% of all of them. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm not debating, I'm not doing apologetics, I'm just listening. 
answering, agreeing, disagreeing, posturing, pondering. But this has so much more that I want to talk about. A contemporary application, this idea of overcoming indifference. Looking at the greater goods. We'll look at that. We'll look at some of that next week, but today I want to close with understanding this. Is that Christ is the true neighbor. So we're not to take away from this parable the simple only. We're to take away from this parable the simple only that we have application. Jesus didn't say this so he could only hide theological truths. He said this so that he could teach theological truths. For those who can see him in the midst of those, it's a double whammy. He calls all people to be compassionate. It's a requirement. But we who have seen the compassion of Christ, we who have seen the love of God in Christ, we who have seen the gospel of Christ, we who have been participants, we who have been given the Holy Spirit, we who have been born again as the beloved of God, adopted into the Lord Jesus Christ, we of all people must see that Jesus Christ is the good neighbor. He is the best neighbor. He is the one who loves us with an unfailing love. And no matter where we are, he meets us where we are. We're not looking for him. He finds us. When we're hiding, he digs us up. When we're dead, he resurrects us. And there is nothing that can separate us from his love. There is no will, no magic, no man, no monster, nothing that can keep us from him. When he said it is finished, he showed us the truth of his love. And it wasn't just an example, though it is, it was an effectual reality. It was a transaction. It was a contract, a promise. God the Father and God the Son, before the foundation of the world, eternally purposed to create a world in, that, in which Jesus the Christ would come into the world to save his people. Without them, in spite of them, and because of them. Get those three things in your mind. Without them means we're not doing anything for our salvation. In spite of them, because we don't deserve it. And because of them, because we are the object of his love. We are worthy and unworthy at the same time. Get that. Get that. What do we do with it? We need to reflect on this. We need to think about it. We need to think about how we adhere to Law, cultural law, religious law, at the cost of compassion and love. And I've got, I've got a long list. I'm not exaggerating when I say 250 pages or more of how this would play out. Yeah, that's about a year of stuff. I mean, years of stuff. You categorize this stuff in your mind. Think about what you've written in your head. Think about what's inside your brain. If you could put it down on paper and look at it. Not only do we rest in the gospel, we live the gospel. We live the grace of God as best we can for his namesake. And we should love unconditionally as a way of living out the gospel. Real faith is active. 
You know you're not saved because you've believed. And you are saved because you believed. See, sometimes it, we think that that's the other side. No, we're not, God is not waiting for us to come to the right place. He puts us there. He gives us faith. So we can rest, but when we rest, knowing we have eternal life, we need to then invest in the lives of those around us. Because one, even though it may be eternal life, is a dead faith if it doesn't act. It's a worthless faith if it doesn't love. And I don't know why that became legalistic. Because it doesn't relate to our hope and our assurance. Beloved, I, I ask you, I, I ask you, I implore you, please consider the love of God in Christ Jesus and how it can be lived out in your life right now, in your inner spirit, in the mind that you have, the things that you have not let go of, the people that you have not forgiven. And it's okay. We have to work through these things. It takes time. Just because someone says, I'm sorry, I preached on that a couple of months ago, doesn't mean that they're just automatically sitting at the table playing blackjack with us or watching movies with us. Sometimes we have to work through the conflict, the emotions, the pain. But the forgiveness needs to be there. Why? Because of compassion. But I don't even think that's the primary issue that we deal with, is it? I think that one of the primary issues we deal with in our day is that we just don't seem to care. And that's okay too. Because we're busy, we're tired, we're frustrated. So this wasn't written so that we would become guilty. This was written that we may become free to know the one who showed him mercy is displaying the love of God. Go do likewise. We'll finish the rest of this next week. Father, I thank you for this teaching. I thank you for the word that you've given us, the gospel of Luke and the teachings of Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, I pray that as we grow in our understanding of these truths, that we would live them, that we would have the freedom. Lord, that you've, you've given me reservation about some things. and. Father, you've given me freedom about others. So, Lord, let us work these things out together as a church. That we may love each other in spite of each other. And learn to do so freely without pretense or fear of consequence. And Lord, this week that we have, this rainy day, allow us to just enjoy those we love. To see each other and look in each other's face. And, and see each other through the eyes that you see us through. Eyes of grace, the compassion of Christ. And we thank you for this. In his name we pray. Amen.